Well, of course, you know what happens when you've got a feed in you, don't you? Uh, well, I know what happens to me. Uh, Deborah and Hannah say that I'm the only person who can watch a movie with my eyes closed from start to finish. So uh, I hope you'll stay with me tonight. We've been looking this morning uh, at the first three churches of the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation. Because on our anniversary service, we've wanted to come and find what Jesus expects from us uh, as a church. Uh, And in Revelation, he's revealed what he expects from his church at any time and in any place in these seven letters that he's written. And before we come to look at the remaining four, for those who weren't here this morning, uh, I just want to fill in a little bit of background that might be helpful to just consider what was happening at the the particular time that we're going to be uh, focusing in on this evening. The seven churches were situated in Asia Minor, that's today's Turkey. And the letters were written uh, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. That's 81 to 96 AD. He was a very powerful man, but also he was a god, because that went with the position of emperor, and he was therefore worshipped. And it was during his reign that there was a sustained period of persecution against the Christian church. Now, for a Christian to be living uh, in Asia Minor at that time, you had the choice of worshipping God or worshipping Caesar. And if you remain faithful to Jesus Christ, then you could expect to be socially ostracised, you could expect to be abused, imprisoned, and perhaps even pay the ultimate price. Also, Uh, The church at that time, not only was it facing persecution, but it was facing uh, false prophecy from uh, within and without. And also uh, the society which the churches would have been growing up in would have been one where numerous deities were worshipped, gods and goddesses. uh, And the worship of these uh, false gods often involved uh, sexual immorality and even occult Practices. So the church, that with the churches that we're looking at this evening, they were facing persecution, error, uh, and sin. Uh, and the three churches that we looked at this morning, the first one was Ephesus, uh, and the expectation that we learned from that was that uh, Christ expects us to be in love with the Lord Jesus. Ephesus was a church that had lost its first love. So the lesson we learned from that is we're not to do that. We are to keep in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most fundamental aspect of being a Christian, that we're in love with Jesus Christ. The second church that we looked at was the one found uh, in Smyrna. It was a suffering church. And we found that Jesus Christ expects us to be prepared to be faithful to him even unto death. And the third church that we looked at this morning uh, was the church in Pergamum and the issue there was false teaching and the lesson that Jesus wants us to learn from that church is that he expects us to be true to God's word so we're going to pick up the narrative that David uh, read for us this evening and we're coming now to the fourth church uh, that's the one at Thyatira 
Now Thyatira, unlike the first three uh, cities, possessed no strategic or political significance. It was known as a trading centre and it had grown very wealthy through a number of trade guilds. These involved the production of linen, woolens, dyes, etc. And if you're familiar with Lydia, who was uh, converted under the ministry of Paul and Philippi, she was from Thyatira, she was a seller of purple, and she probably was a member of one of these guilds. And the church at Thyatira had much to commend it. If, you're, if you've got your Bibles open and you're keeping a, a view of that, it's in verse 19. Jesus comes as he did to each of the churches saying, I know your works. Because Jesus was walking amongst the churches. He knows everything there is about the churches, not only uh, way back then uh, in Asia Minor, but today. He knows everything there is to know about this church here in Dundonald. And what he, what he brings to uh, their remembrance here in Thyatira, in verse 19, he says, I know your works, uh, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. Uh, and then he says, uh, even more significantly, these were areas where there was growth in the church. So, from all intents and purposes, this church was, was very healthy. But sadly, this healthy exterior was uh, disguising a poison that was within the church. Look at verse 20, he says, But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Here was the source of this poison. A self-styled prophetess. Now, it, uh, her, the name given here is obviously a, a symbolic name. Jesus is referring to her as Je- Jezebel. A reminder to his readers of Queen Jezebel. Uh, from Old Testament times who married uh, King Ahab. She was from Tyre and she was responsible for introducing idolatry big time uh, and the attendant sexual immorality uh, of the worship of, of those deities into Israel. And you could really say that that was the start of Israel's decline. It, it, she was uh, the, uh, the, uh, a queen who led the people astray. And this is what's happening here in this church. Jezebel, uh, as Jesus pronounces the word on her, she's guilty. She's guilty, in verse 20, of false teaching. She's guilty of leading um, members of this church astray, leading them into sexual immorality. And she's also revealing to them, uh, verse 24, deep things. And Jesus again calls it as it is. The deep things of Satan, he says here. Probably occultic practices. We don't know for sure. But obviously something that he takes a very dim view of her. In the church, she's not the only one that's guilty. Those who have followed her are guilty. And to some extent, the church as a whole. Look at verse 20. He says, I have this against you, that you, the church... Tolerate that woman Jezebel. They were allowing these things to happen. Right in the midst of their church. They weren't doing anything about it. They were almost complicit. And what we see here. The result of all this. Is that there is sin in the church. And we know from the Old Testament times. That sin in the camp was a serious matter. Sin is serious to Jesus. And we've got to understand that. I've got to learn that and you've got to learn that sin is serious because we treat sin so lightly, don't we? 
in the society that we're, we're, we're faced. There's lots of it around and we can become tainted by it. We can indulge in it. It's at times not a massive issue to us. The sin's not a big sin. But for Jesus, sin is a serious, serious matter. He's alarmed at it. You see, Jesus cannot look on sin. He died to cleanse us from sin. And if he is going to send people to hell for sin, he's certainly not going to want it to be at the centre of his church, his bride. And look how he introduces himself to this church. He comes as the one who's on fire. His eyes are like a flame of fire. These eyes of Jesus are uncovering this sin and shame at the, at the centre of this church. These feet like burnished bronze are coming to consume the dross in this church. To purify this church. To exercise judgment. And we see the judgment here as Jesus promises what he's going to do. He says, for I wills, I will throw Jezebel onto a sick bed. The sin bed is going to become a bed of suffering for her. I will throw her followers into great tribulation, he says in verse 22, if they don't repent. I will strike her children dead, verse 23. I will give each according to their works, 23. Sin is serious to Jesus. And the challenge for us is, is it as serious to us as it is to Jesus? Jesus hates sin. Could we go that far to say that we hate sin? See, Paul tells us in Ephesians, and we were looking at this in iron just uh, last Sunday, we have been chosen in Christ, we the people of God, chosen in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. God says in his word, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We're to be like him, aren't we? You see, the standards that Jesus sets for his church are high, probably higher than ours. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and verse 3 with regard to sexual immorality, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity among you. That's a high standard, isn't it, that Jesus sets. And so he throws down the gauntlet to the church in Thyatira. He says, repent, clean up your act. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? We live in a a sex-saturated society where immorality is all about We need to look at ourselves, don't we? We can so often become tainted by it. Jesus expects his church to be holy and blameless. That's the fourth expectation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we're going to move on to church number five, Sardis. Sardis was a city whose best days were behind it. It had been absolutely devastated in an earthquake in AD 17 and it never quite was restored to its glory. And this in some ways mirrored the church in Sardis. It had seen better days. And we come now to one of the most critical letters of the seven. This one to the church in Sardis. Jesus comes to them and he says, I know your works. And they're downright unsatisfactory, verse 2. He says, they're not complete in my sight. He doesn't even elaborate what they are. You have a reputation of being alive, he says. And at one time that might have been justified. 
But it's no longer the case. In fact, in God's sight, you're the exact opposite of being alive. You are dead, he says. You are dead. You see, Jesus is not interested in reputations. Jesus is interested in the reality of the situation. He knew the situation here in Sardis. Others looking out, or looking at it from without, might have still thought this church has a good reputation, but Jesus could read their thoughts, Jesus could read their motivations, Jesus could understand what exactly was going on here. So, what was behind the, the spiritual stagnation in this church? Well, I think maybe verse 4 gives us a clue. It says there, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And if we take the opposite of that, that would suggest that there were many in the church who had soiled their garments. And we, when we hear this, it looks like an inference of sin, the soiling of garments. Sin has crept into this church and has contaminated most of it. And Christ has detected that. The Holy Spirit has been grieved by this sin. And his life-giving flow to this church has all but ceased. You see, without the Holy Spirit, the church is helpless. It's powerless. It's lifeless. But Jesus has the answer, isn't it? He has the answer as he has for these churches. Verse 1, again, as he introduces himself to this dead church, he says... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. He has the seven spirits of God. What does this mean? What does this signify? It just means that he is the Holy Spirit in all its various ministries. The Spirit of Jesus is so essential. In fact, it's absolutely vital to the life and to the witness of the church. 2 Corinthians 3 and 6 tells us that it is the Spirit that gives life. And as we challenge ourselves to that, isn't the Spirit such an, an essential part of the Christian life? God's Word tells us that we are to be filled with the Spirit. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to pray in the Spirit. We're to live according to the Spirit. We're to produce the fruits of the Spirit. We're to be uh, listening to and guided by the Spirit. We're to earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. To this church at Sardis, he says in verse 3, he says, wake up, wake up, or sorry, verse 2, wake up. He says also there in verse 3, he says, remember then what you received. Think back, to what, what have you received? There's the answer to your problem. What had they received? Well, they had received the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, but they had also received the gift of of the Holy Spirit. That was the answer to their deadness. And Jesus expects his church. In any age and in any place. And Jesus expects us here in Dundonald. To be a spirit empowered church. The Holy Spirit has been given for a purpose. To empower the church of Jesus Christ. He who has an ear to hear. Let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Now on to the penultimate church. The church at Philadelphia. 
The Church of Philadelphia was founded in the 2nd century BC for the spread of Greek culture and Greek language in the area. It was positioned in a strategic area and with the newly constructed Roman roads. It was an ideal setting to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the interior, into the interior aspects of the province of Asia. Now, Jesus highly commends this church. He comes and he says, as he does to each of the churches, I know your works. You are an obedient church. Verses 8 and 10, he says, you've kept my word. We look at verse 8 also, he says, you've stood your ground against opposition. You have not denied my name. Verse 10, you have endured patiently. And they have done all this in spite of the fact that he tells us in verse 8 uh, that they are they have little power. What he really means is there they have little influence in the society in which they have placed but they are still holding firm. They have done it also in spite of satanic opposition from the Jews. Look at verse 9. And then they have also uh, held firm despite the fact that there's a dark cloud of impending tribulation hanging over them in verse 10 and to this band of faithful believers strategically placed there uh, in Asia Minor he says in verse 8 I have set before you an open door in the New Testament the term open door is really equated with I've set before you an opportunity an opportunity to reach out. 1 Corinthians 16 and 9, Paul says, A wide door for effective work is opened up to me. Colossians 4 and 3, Paul says, May God open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Jesus has told this church, hasn't he, under the Great Commission, to go. Go into all the world, he says, and proclaim the gospel. Mark 16 and verse 15. And verse 1 here, uh, or verse 7, sorry, uh, as Jesus opens this letter, reminds us that it is Jesus who holds the key of David. It is he who opens doors. It is he who shuts doors. He that presents us with opportunities and he who will close those opportunities. And of course we still live in the day of opportunity, don't we? This is the day of salvation. But a day will come when Jesus will close that door and the day of grace will be over till then Jesus says will you lift up your eyes look at the fields they are ready for harvest Jesus expects this church to seize the opportunities that he provides he expects us to be a church that is mission orientated a a church that is reaching out to those who are lost in sin, to have an open door policy, and that's the challenge for us here in Dundonald. Are we a church with an open door? An open door into the community that's all around us. Davy has been telling us over the last few weeks of the, the real issues that are happening here, uh, right on our doorstep. There's a, a world of opportunity just awaiting outside this door. We know that in this community here of Dundonald, and not just here. Are we to have an interest? But right to, to the, the far corners of the world. Are we mission orientated? Are we all mission orientated? Are we praying for mission? 
Are we financially supporting mission? Are we encouraging mission? Are we even prepared to go on mission? Jesus expects his church to seize the opportunities that he presents them with. We could say here that he expects us to be mission oriented or opportunity oriented. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, we're on the last leg of the journey. We're coming to the church at Laodicea. I'm told it was founded in 250 BC and it prospered under Roman rule. It grew rapidly into a centre for banking, manufacturing and medicine. But sadly, the church at Laodicea could not resist the allurements of, of wealth that was all around them. Look at the estimation this church has of itself in verse 17. I am rich, they say. I have prospered. I need nothing. And what's the giveaway there? It's I, I, I. Me, me, me. A church that is self-satisfied, self-centered, self-reliant. Like the church at Sardis, their view of themselves, sadly, was at odds with the view that Jesus had of them in verse 17. Look at his reply to the I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing. He says, "Uh uh-uh, you are wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. Naked. Wow, that's some description. You see, the problem in this church was that self was on the throne and Christ had been pushed to the periphery. In fact, even further, if you look at verse 20, he's actually standing outside the door of this church, knocking to get in. They're looking to their own interests. They have other plans other than his to look after. Look at Jesus' view of them in verse 17. As he says, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. In verse 15 he says, you're neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. I'm told the words here for hot and cold are quite extreme. Hot really means on fire, at boiling point. And cold, it's ice cold. But they're somewhere in between. They're lukewarm. And like taking a drink of lukewarm water, Jesus says, it's yuck. He says, you make me sick. That's what he says to the church. You see, if Christ is who he says he is, the son of the living God. And if Christ has died for our sins. And if Christ has clothed us in his righteousness to make us acceptable before a holy God. And if he has given us life that will never last. Then nothing less than wholehearted and total commitment will do for him. But even though he says these harsh words to this church, 
Do you see how tenderly he deals with this church? He says there in 19, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. He still loves this church. He hasn't given up on it. He's at the door knocking to come in. He wants to come in, he says. He wants back in there. He's in on the exterior of this church. Wonder tonight, is Christ at the exterior of your life? Is he outside of it? Have you ever opened the door of your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever invited him in to come and deal with your sin that is the barrier to you coming before a holy God and of entering heaven one day? Look at Jesus here in verse 20 as he stands outside this door. He's knocking. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will come in. Jesus will never force entrance into your life. He waits for you to take that decision. It's your decision whether you open the door or whether you keep it closed. May God give you the grace to open that door, even tonight, to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus comes to this church here in Laodicea, he counsels them in verse 18. Look what he says. To a a church that was familiar with commerce, he says, Come to me. Come to me, he says, and buy from me. What are they going to buy? He says, come and buy gold refined in the fire. Come and buy riches that will truly satisfy. Come and buy clothes that will cover up your shame and your sin. And make you acceptable before a holy God. Come and buy salve for your blindness. And restore your spiritual vision. He says. Be zealous. He says to this church. And repent. You see Jesus expects his church to be hot for him. At boiling point. On fire for him. You see a church on fire for Jesus. Is a church that is Jesus. At the very centre of everything that they do. And that's what Jesus expects of his church. That he is in the driving seat. That he is at the centre of everything that's going on. He is occupying that position that is rightfully his. Right at the very heart of a church. And that brings our series now to a, a close. There we have it. We've gone round the seven churches in Asia Minor and and on this as we enter our 67th year of witness here in Dundonald there are the expectations that Jesus has for this church and when I say a church yes it's for us collectively but as we just think through them this evening before we close it's for each one of us individually to look at those expectations because yes It's what Jesus expects of his church. But it's what Jesus expects of me. And it's what Jesus expects of you. He expects us to be in love with him. And we saw how very important that is.
He expects us, should it come, and it may well do, that we will be faithful to him, even in the midst of persecution and ridicule, that we will be faithful even unto death. He expects us in a day when the word of God is under attack to be true to this ultimate authority in our lives, the holy word of God. He expects us in a sin-sick society to live lives that are holy and blameless. He expects us, rather than render service in the power of the self, to look to the resources that he's given us and the resource of the indwelling Holy Spirit to be empowered by his spirit. He expects us in a world of appalling need where so many are lost to be mission oriented, to reach out for them. And he expects us in all things to have Christ at the very centre of our lives. May God grant it as we look through these things that we will, as we move off into our 67th year, be faithful to what Jesus expects from us. These are big demands. They're not easy. We've got to work through them in tandem with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might be the church that he wants us to be here. That we might reach this community for him. That we might be built up in our own faith. And bring much glory to him.